Good morning, afternoon, and evening. Welcome to a special return of the Bear Market Brief podcast. Alongside BMB Russia and Eurasia Brief, this podcast covers politics and economics and the space in between across Russia and Ukraine. I'm your host, Aaron, and if we haven't met or you haven't heard my voice, I'm a fellow here with the Eurasia program and currently the host of the Continent podcast, which focuses on how the Ukraine war is impacting Europe. I'd encourage you to take a listen. On this episode, and in more to come, we're returning to my old stomping grounds. Today, we'll be returning to Ukraine and the ongoing war, which has seen a lot of motion and commotion of late. A Ukrainian counteroffensive, Russia's mobilization, and planned annexation of several Ukrainian regions, and perhaps most alarmingly, threats concerning nuclear weapons. Today, which is for the record, September 27th, my guest and I will be chatting about these topics but also the broader implications of this war for Russia and its place in the world. So without further delay, joining us today is Phil Vashidevsky, a fellow fellow here at FPRI's Eurasia program. Phil is a 2022 Templeton Fellow here at FPRI. He is a former paramilitary case officer who had a 31-year career in the Directorate of Operations of the Central Intelligence Agency. He was a member of the first CIA team into Afghanistan in 2001, and served a three-year assignment on the National Security Council staff as the Director for Intelligence and Covert Action Programs. His CIA career was paralleled by a concurrent 30-year Marine Corps career, seven years active duty and 23 in reserve as an infantry officer, including mobilizations for Iraq and Afghanistan. Phil graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1983 with a BA in International Relations and European History. He also has an MA from Harvard's Davis Center for Russian studies and an MA in national security studies from the Army War College. So let's dive in. Phil, great to have you with us today. Thank you, Aaron. So I wanna start with an excerpt from your most recent publication here with FPRI, which dates to early June, if I'm not mistaken. And I'll read it now, kind of set the stage for our discussion today. So in quotes, there is a risk on an operational level if Ukrainian forces near Kharkiv counterattacked to seize Kupiansk and destroyed two bridges over the Askil River, thereby trapping Russian forces in a pocket around Izium. At the strategic level, if Ukrainian forces were able to quickly retake Kherson, cross the Dnieper River, and reach Crimea's Perekop Isthmus, this would have a stunning effect. Now, the context for that was a discussion, or at least a part of your paper, focusing on what could cause a collapse of Russian forces. And I think, very interestingly, what you said regarding Kupiansk and Kharkiv, that came to pass in September. Ukraine launched a counteroffensive. So I want to start with there. Um, tell us about this counteroffensive, the latest in the war. What is going on currently? Well, uh, Aaron, when I analyzed the situation in early June, I was struck by how tenuous the Russian supply lines to Izium were and the fact that its western flank was open for a counterattack towards Kupiansk. I believe that a Ukrainian deep strike towards that city would unnerve the Russian soldiers in the region and possibly lead to a rout due to the brittle nature that I assessed of the Russian army. Regarding Kherson, the situation there was equally untenable for the Russian army. Russia has about a full division of troops, approximately 15 to 20,000 men, in a very narrow park across a very wide river and only two bridges to supply them, a clear recipe for disaster. Uh, so it didn't take any clairvoyance to see that there was possible troubles uh, set up for the Russians based on the deployment of their forces. Now, 
in the past few weeks, we have seen how the Ukraine ex exploited that open flank near Izium and how the brittle nature of Russia's military led immediately to a rout, abandoned almost an entire armored division's worth of equipment. I believe the estimate is that the Russians abandoned about a brigade's worth of armor and a brigade's worth of mechanized infantry equipment uh, to the Ukrainians. Um, in Kyrgyzstan, the Ukrainians have used their new precision munitions from the West to make the two bridges across the Dnieper River impassable. They've basically trapped the Russian forces on the North Bank. So what that brings us to today is, and I believe uh, that in the next few weeks, we will likely see the Ukrainian army trying to do another strategic flanking movement against the Russians east of the Oskil River, uh, which Kupiansk lay on, and towards the towns of Svatove and Starobilsk to strike deep in the rear and cause another rout. Now, the Ukrainians are working on this right now. There's heavy fighting going on um, along the Oskil River and also near a town called Lehman. But as the Ukrainian army makes gains in this direction, for some reason, the Russians are not concentrating their best forces to meet this threat, but instead are concentrating those forces approximately 50 miles away to the west against the town of Bakhmut, where they are making slow, but very costly and merely tactical advances that I believe would all be undone should the Ukrainians make a strategic breakthrough again further north and to the west into the Donbass. So that is where we are right now uh, regarding Kharkiv Oblast. Getting to Kherson, the Russians have no way of advancing or retreating. With those two bridges out, the Russians can only bring a few tons of supply a day across the river on small ferries and boats. Now, to give you, you may think, well, tons of supplies, that's a lot. Um, in comparison, most forces the size the Russians have on the Dnieper's North Bank require hundreds of tons of supplies each day, even when in the defensive. So the Russians, for all practical purposes, are cut off uh, on the North Bank to the Dnieper. And I estimate that it would be nearly impossible for them to try a Dunkirk-like withdrawal across the river due to the fact that Ukrainian artillery is in range uh, has been destroying some of these uh, ferries when it gets a chance and would uh, certainly mass fires on any concentrations of troops on the banks trying to get across. Now, this means for Moscow that the worst is not over for Russia in this area. And at some point, I believe we may see a mass surrender of Russian forces on the North Bank due to their inability to withdraw and their inability to be re resupplied. It's, it's, it's a fact. Sometime in the future, they will run out of food and ammunition. And I believe that the shock of that defeat will echo in Russia even stronger than the shock of losing Izium uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, Aaron, I hope that answers your question. That, in a nutshell, is kind of an explanation of, of how I saw the situation back in June when I wrote the piece, why I identified Kyrgyzstan and um, Kupiansk as um, major uh, areas of interest. And um, as I just said, that's my basic assessment of the current situation in the war in Ukraine, as all the other parts right now of the 600 plus mile front lines in this war uh, remain static. So two kind of more technical questions. One, you mentioned um, the situation in the north around Kharkiv and that Russia's kind of scattered withdrawal left about a brigade's worth of equipment for Ukraine. How big is a brigade? Talking about an armored brigade, how many tanks is that? How much equipment are we talking here? Uh, good question. 
and uh, this is something that needs a little bit of translating. In the U.S. Army, a brigade would be about three battalions of uh, three battalions of uh, either tanks or mechanized infantry, plus an attached artillery battalion. Uh, in the Russian Army, a brigade is uh, brigades are smaller. However, they're they're still numbering around. They would still number around three to four thousand people, and uh, up to any you know depending on how many armored battalions and how many mechanized battalions uh, but we would be talking uh, about at least um close to 100 tanks and over 100 infantry fighting vehicles again depending on the size the type of battalions there are armor heavy brigades um and there are mech heavy brigades but bottom, bottom line is in their haste to get out the russian soldiers were able to retreat uh, but the way they were able to do so was to get out. You know, they usually stole personal cars or trucks and get out and left their equipment behind. If I can repeat, in Kherson, they don't have that. Uh, they don't have that option. They don't have anywhere to go. And maybe they'll be able to get some of their men out. They are going to lose all their heavy equipment on the north side when the Ukrainians are finally able to push through. So that is the, the situation, and our, our listeners should um, consider that we're talking about losing um, hundreds of tanks, uh, hundreds upon hundreds of infantry fighting vehicles, armored vehicles, trucks, anti-aircraft uh, weapons, the whole plethora of military equipment that makes up large size units of anywhere from five to 10,000 men. So one other question around the Northern Front, and I have another Harrison question to follow, after which we'll go to our next topic. There's been a lot of talk about Isium, Liman as these pivotal locations. What's so important about them? Um, Isium really, there's, there was no pivotal um, importance of it until the war came to Isium. Just like Gettysburg was once a sleepy little town in Pennsylvania until the war came to that in three days in, in uh, July in 1863. What was, um, what was important about Izium when the Russians first took it is that that extended their lines uh, on the western part of the Donbass uh, into you know, Ukrainian defenses. At the same time, on the eastern side of the Donbass, they had also uh, been making advances. And when they first took Izium, the fear was that they'd be able to use Izium as a bank for one of the two pincer movements to therefore trap a large amount of Ukrainian soldiers in the Donbass. This obviously never came to be because they were never able to break through, but Izium was going to be one part of that one-two punch to again try and encircle uh, the Ukrainian forces in the Donbass. It obviously didn't work. The Russians were never able to advance uh, from Izium and uh, from uh, its areas in the east in the Donbass, um, Donetsk, and uh, therefore, um, Izium then uh, just became uh, one more town uh, that the fighting was going on. Turning to the south, I'm kind of comparing the northern front, if you could call it that, and this southern front. I know it's a very long front, so I want to be specific here. In this recent offensive around uh, Kharkiv, we saw Ukrainian forces move really, really fast. I mean, broke through in a matter of days. Whereas in Kherson, the progress is a lot slower. So is the difference here Russia's ability to resist? Is Ukraine just waiting down south for them to run out of food? What explains the difference in strategy? It's not so much a difference in strategy. Um, it's just the, the rhythms that you'll find in combat in war. 
Um, it, I'll, I'll use a quote. Um, uh, one, um, uh, one music star once said, it took him years and years to become an overnight success. And sometimes the same in war. The quick um, penetrations of the lines near Izium and into Kupiansk uh, were also were based on months of preparation by the Ukrainians, bringing up reserves, doing reconnaissance and intelligence work to find the weak spots, bringing up the logistics that the, um, the forces would have, the wherewithal to continue their advance. And the same is happening in, down in, um, in the south near Kherson. The Ukrainians have made some advances towards, um, uh, towards their objective, uh, but they're faced with a slightly um, different problem than up in Izium. In Izium, the front was so long. Remember exactly, we're talking about a 600-mile front uh, from where uh, where the fighting is now, a little bit east of uh, Izium, to Kherson, 600 miles. And the uh, the Russians were not able to concentrate as many of the forces that they could, say, up there in the west, because they've concentrated more uh, towards taking, like I said, Bakhmut and down near Kherson, where they wanted to take the town of Mikolaev, which would then allow them to try to make a run towards Odessa, which, as we know now, has never happened. So there's a larger amount of Russians in Kherson and a smaller amount of territory. It's a very small pocket. I encourage our listeners to take a look at the, the map and Google it up and take a look at just how little area that is. So the, the, um, the Ukrainians are facing a larger concentration of Russian forces and are also not going to uh, just do frontal assaults like the Russians seem to do time after time. They're waiting them out. They've destroyed the bridges over the river. They've destroyed their logistics. Every day, the Russians have to stay there with less, with less ammunition, less food, less gasoline. Uh, it means greater advantage for the Ukrainians when they do decide to attack. So I think that's as good a kind of prelude preface for kind of next steps, starting to look forward a little bit. Um, Russia, in the past week or so, has announced a rather massive mobilization. Putin in a national address said 300,000 initial indicators seem to be that a lot more people are being mobilized. So there's the old saying that quantity has a quality all its own. What does, let's assume Russia taking this 300,000 number, which again, may be the lower end of the spectrum. What does the mobilization of an extra 300,000 Russians have for the run of war here? Will Ukraine still be able to, to take ground? My estimate, and again, this is just my estimate, is that this mobilization is going to be a two-edged sword for Putin. Yes, by bringing this many more men under the colors, he will probably be able to prolong the war through the summer uh, just by, again, by quantity. However, I also believe, and I think that we're already seeing through social media, that this mobilization is going to provide the tender for widespread social unrest in the Russian army and in Russian society. Let me now justify what I just said. And to do so, I'd like to describe to our listeners how the Russian army is organized and therefore why I don't believe this mobilization can help it too much, especially the way the war has been fought in Ukraine. So the Russian army, when the invasion of Ukraine began February 22, uh, was and still is a combination of both volunteer and draftee soldiers. In the ground forces, approximately two-thirds uh, two of the soldiers were volunteers, or as the Russians call them, kontraktniki, you sign a contract. 
Now, we need to understand the small size of the actual Russian um, combat forces, though. The ground forces throughout all of Russia had approximately 280,000 men. The airborne troops, which is actually a separate branch, um, had uh, another 45,000 men. And the naval infantry forces, approximately 35,000 men for a total of 360,000 men. Now, to this, we can add the paramilitary formation called Rostvardia, that numbered approximately 300,000 men, and per Russian military doctrine and Russian legislation, is to follow behind the army in battle and secure occupied areas. Now, what about its reserve system? The Russian army reserves, reserve system consisted of a few organized reserve units, but mostly depends on individual replacements. The organized reserve was started in 2015 and it's called BARS, uh, which is an acronym for this Russian title, Voyevoy Army Reserve Strana, translated that's the Combat Army Reserve of the Country. Now, the title is equally awkward in Russian as it is in English, but BARS also means leopard in Russian. And that is the name these units are referred to as, as leopards, as BARS, battalion BARS. Um, it's estimated that when the war began, there were approximately 20,000 bars reservists and approximately 40 battalion sized units who trained occasionally during the year and in the summer during exercises. Now, here's the key. Most of these battalions have already been called up. They've seen combat service and have suffered heavy losses. Open source reporting is that many of the bars reservists uh, were resentful of conditions they faced and that the government did not come through with a promised pay and bonuses, uh, leaving them to leave when they got back home um, after their, their tour was, was done. So whatever reserve capability BARS provided the Russian army in February, it no longer provides that today. Therefore, there is no organized reserve for Putin to call up, just individuals who must be trained or retrained and put into existing units at the front. Now let's talk about those people being mobilized. With the exception of the bars reservists again, all other Russian men who are designated reservists are simply those who have served in the military and are eligible for recall. It's estimated that there are 2,000, excuse me, 2 million such men who have served as either volunteers or draftees in the Russian army in the past five years. These are the men that Russia wants to call up now or should be calling up now. But as we're seeing, again, in social media and other reports, this mobilization has been very haphazard, calling up citizens of all ages, and it seems all ailments, and not focused on the segment of the population they really need to bring back to the colors. Now, in the past, in Soviet times, and up to about, I think, 2005 in the Russian army, these individual replacements would be sent to military units that were in cadre status. Uh, that means that the unit already had a certain number of officers and soldiers in it, usually about half strength or less, and the replacements would then come in and fill in the rest of the structure and undergo training with an organized formation. Uh, this is important because the Russian army does not have basic and advanced training centers for new men. Well, in our, in our nation, for the Marines, you have Paris Island in San Diego. In the Army, you have Fort Gordon and Fort Dix and Fort Benning, where the initial basic training is done. Basic training and, indi and individual military specialty training in the Russian Army is done at the unit level, at the unit basis. Well, today, all of those units 
are deployed to Ukraine. There will only be a few officers and men left back at the unit barracks in Russia. And let me tell you, those are generally the types of soldiers every smart commander leaves behind if his unit is going into combat, if you can catch my drift. In other words, he's leaving behind the people he does not want to have with him. So these are the people who are left back at the base. These are the people who would be training the new soldiers. Now, there's no way this system will provide any meaningful combat training before a reservist deploys to the front. Uh, Russian videos and chats I monitor indicate that the reservists are being promised two weeks of training. Uh, but other videos and, and chats I've seen say they're getting only a few days of training or no day training at all. Uh, basically, people are going forward to the war with no training or retraining. And to give you just a really quick comparison, um, as you said in your introduction, I had a 30-year career in the Marine Corps, seven years on active duty, 23 in the reserves. At one point, I was the assistant operations officer for a Marine Reserve Regiment, an infantry regiment. We trained, obviously, every weekend, um, one weekend a month, at least two weeks in the summer. If you hire up rank, it was actually there was more of a commitment than that. But the plan was, if we were to be mobilized, as my regiment was after 9-11, the people in the regiment, would all the Marines would go down to either Camp Pendleton or Camp Lejeune and receive at least the full months, if not more, training. And this is what was done for those Marine Reserve units, and not to mention Army and National Guard units that were sent to either Afghanistan or Iraq after the events of 9-11. In this case, the Russians have none of that. They have neither organized reserve units left anymore or any plan really to train these people before they have to get onto the front lines. And this here is what I want to stress in your answer in your question. This is the real Achilles heel of Putin's mobilization. Whether he mobilizes 300,000 people or a million people, as I thread in the next few months, it does nothing to solve the Russian military's inability to provide proper logistics, leadership, and weapons to units in combat. Uh, to solve these problems, Putin would have to rebuild the entire Russian army and military industrial complex, uh, probably from scratch. There's not enough time to do that, even if it could be done. And this is where Putin is going to be in trouble. Here's where this is a two-edged sword. Uh, because these 300, hundreds of thousands of people from throughout Russia are going to be talking back to people on their cell phones, you know, through their telegram channels and whatever. And the word is going to further get out about how badly this war is being conducted. That's why I made the statement at the beginning of the answer to my question that mobilization will make a difference by prolonging the war, but also possibly by providing the tinder for widespread social unrest in the Russian army and in Russian society. It will prolong the war through the winter by providing enough men to hold the line along the 600 plus mile front. Again, your, again, your quantity is a quality comment. But these men are gonna suffer greatly from Ukrainian fire, the rain, snow, and ice of the winter, and mostly from the inadequate logistics and leadership of the Russian army. I'd like to stress this, conscript armies with little training poor living conditions, and that have suffered a series of defeats have historically been prone to disintegration or mutiny. And I don't believe there's any reason why the Russian army in Ukraine should be immune from this tendency as well. So again, to repeat in my, the answer to your question, as I conclude, the newly mobilized men may be able to hold the line during the winter just by sheer numbers, but they will suffer greatly. And their pro problems broadcast via cell phones across Russia 
could end up being the impetus of a movement to remove Putin from power. Again, this mobilization is therefore a two-edged sword for Putin, in my opinion. Understood. And I think we'll, we'll get to the political implications later, but I want to talk about a more kind of immediate segue here um, that's just been being discussed a lot, and that's the nuclear question. Um, Russian officials have been talking about nuclear weapons and using them fairly frequently of late. And I wanted to ask, especially given they may understand very well the predicament they're in, what nuclear use means? Is it likely? Could it change things? What would be the implications of Russia using nuclear weapons to stop or escalate this conflict? Uh, thank you, because that is a very serious question. It is something I wrote uh, again about in FBRI in June, and it's with us right now to the current day. And this is what the implications of the so-called referendum uh, are for. Uh, Russia and it uh, happening right now in Ukraine. Russia and its sympathizers in occupied Ukrainian territory are conducting a so-called referendum to provide a basis for incorporating the occupied territories into Russia proper, as was done in 2014 when Russia illegally annexed Crimea. The reason this is being done right now, uh, right after their major defeat, is Putin is hoping to speed up and provide, at least in Russian eyes, a legal basis for using nuclear weapons and hopefully deter Ukraine from further counteroffensives to regain its own territory, fearing that they may not, might now be met with a nuclear response since Russia considers this Russian territory. In my opinion, this is the last gasp of a man with no strategy for victory and dwindling resources to continue the war. Let's, let's discuss the nuclear option here. Um, and there are three kinds of nuclear options. There's a strategic option, there's the demonstration option, a strategic option, and a, a tactical option. Let's talk about demonstration. Putin could try to conduct a nuclear demonstration, such as a strike against unpopulated Snake Island, or a high airburst over the Black Sea, or even a major Ukrainian city, as a so-called warning shot to try and terrorize the people, if not into surrendering, then at least a ceasefire. I believe this is unlikely to work. Uh, a demonstration nuclear explosion will bring all the disadvantages of world condemnation and even further sanctions without any advantage of changing the correlation of forces on the battlefield. Uh, plus, uh, it, it's, it is not workable. A high air burst in the atmosphere, uh, as we saw in U.S. tests in 1962, is likely to destroy numerous satellites, further enraging world opinion, and probably destroying uh, many of Russia's own surveillance and communications satellites as well. And a strike on an unoccupied place like Snake Island would send fallout into an, either a NATO country or Crimea itself. So there aren't any real advantages to doing a nuclear demonstration to try and warn Ukraine. So the next option would be a strategic nuclear strike on a major city to terrorize Ukraine and to surrender. Um, this is possible. Ukraine is not under the NATO umbrella. Putin could order this. The question is, would people follow Putin's order in his chain of command, knowing the worldwide condemnation and fallout, you should pardon the expression, that this would bring? There's also a question about target selection. Do, would Russian um, strategic forces people follow orders to destroy Kiev, which is the mother city of Rus, uh, you know, the, the birthplace of the Russian nation? Would they destroy major Russian-speaking cities like Kharkiv or Odessa, uh, where lots of, of you know, people 
um, live uh, who are basically, you know, Rus mainly Russian speakers. Uh, if he was to strike at a more, shall we say, Ukrainian town called like Lvov, which is right near the border with Poland, he again uh, risked the effects of radiation reaching NATO territory and bringing retaliation or even NATO's entry into the war. We don't know what the reaction would be if a nuclear missile headed towards uh, Lvov went just a little further and its effects struck Polish territory or the radiation spread across Poland, Slovakia, the Czech Republic and other parts of NATO. So this leads us to the tactical nuclear option. And now tactical nuclear weapons and their strategy for their use were designed for Cold War scenarios of long columns of thousands of Warsaw Pact tanks and vehicles breaking through NATO lines. This is not how Ukraine is fighting though. Ukraine is, fi Ukraine is fighting along the entire battlefield uh, in dispersed fashion using mainly company and battalion sized forces. These are puny targets for tactical nuclear weapons. And Putin would have to order a dozen or more tactical nuclear strikes to make any serious effect on the battlefield. And that would probably be temporary. There is, I'm mentioning these things because um, there is no real magic weapon to rescue Putin from his predicament. Even if he uses tactical nuclear weapons, the Ukrainians can recover, can fall back a little bit and set up another defensive line if, if they wish. I mean, nuclear weapons does not make up for poor strategy, poor tactics, poor intelligence, poor logistics. And it is possible that they would uh, neither break Ukraine's will to fight or give Russia a distinct tactile advantage in the war. It is not, you think of a spoiled kid losing a chess game who then takes his arm and strikes all of the pieces off of the playing board. That is not uh, how nuclear weapons uh, can work. Um, they have their limitations. And um, I'm not sure, again, if the Russian chain of command would follow Putin's orders to launch them. However, they are still extremely dangerous, and we do not wish to see the nuclear taboo broken. Uh, I would hope that the United States continues to use its diplomatic and informational statecraft tools tools to rally the world against breaking this nuclear taboo. This is one of the last things I think across the world we want to see happen. Um, I would be, believe it would be a helpful part of deterrence if we could get a United Nations General Assembly to begin debating this issue and get a General Assembly resolution calling on Russia to commit to the non-use of nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Remember, Ukraine surrendered, gave up all its nuclear weapons in return for guarantees in its territorial integrity by Russia. And I would hope that an UNGA resolution would also warn of the consequences. Um, and I'm sure it would pass by a vast majority of votes. The, the March vote uh, to condemn Russia's invasion had 141 votes in favor and only five against. I think a similar resolution could pass. I think it would be useful uh, in deterring Russia. And also, also it could hopefully, uh, include a warning against Russian misfeasance and malfeasance at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and the consequences of Russia trying to create a second Chernobyl to punish Ukraine. So what I wanna stress is, although Ukraine does not fall under the NATO nuclear umbrella, not all deterrence needs to be nuclear if Russia understands that using atomic weapons will mean the destruction of its economy by worldwide sanctions just as thoroughly as if from retaliatory nuclear strikes.
Another reason we don't want to see the nuclear taboo broken is otherwise we allow any nuclear power, China, North Korea, possibly Iran, carte blanche in the future and precedence to conquer any of its non-nuclear neighbors in the future. So this, uh, this is my view on the possible use of nuclear weapons. Uh, nuclear weapons are not a panacea for every advantage they bring in firepower. They bring political as well as uh, other disadvantages um, on the battlefield. But I still believe strongly we need to do all we can to gather the world to help let Russia know that if they take this step, it is not worth it for them in any way. That was long, I know, but I hope that was worth it. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Um, before we talk about the implications for Russia and for Putin, I wanted to ask a quick question. In following the war, kind of at a high level, has anything you've seen surprised you? Any lessons or takeaways? Quick answer, no. Nothing surprised me. Uh, and I've not been surprised by anything that's happened on either side of the battle lines. Uh, because from my, you know, my military experience, my military career, and my understanding of, um, of war, what has happened over the past several months in Ukraine just reinforces some of the most basic principles of military art and science that have been around since the times of Alexander the Great and the Roman legions. Let me list just a few, uh, again, of these matters. And people, our listeners are probably aware of because it's been so much in the news. But what has happened in Ukraine, again, once again, reinforces in war that, first, morale matters. Napoleon once said that the importance of morale to the material is as three is to one. And this has been a key part of the performance of the Ukrainian and Russian armies. The average Ukrainian soldier knows exactly what he's fighting for. The average Russian soldier has no idea and likely does not care. Uh, those Russians who joined for solely monetary reasons have probably learned that money doesn't matter after experiencing one's first artillery barrage. A second thing that has been shown uh, in this war, training matters. The old adage is that you fight the way you train. The Ukrainian army has spent the year since 2014 rebuilding its army and training to fight along NATO lines and standards from individuals to corps and divisions. Russian training has traditionally been perfunctory. It's been based on the rote repetition of basic soldier tasks and at unit level, centered on performing prearranged maneuvers as opposed to what we call force-on-force -force training against a thinking enemy that requires initiative and flexibility. Another thing has not surprised me is what has happened with morale and training regarding unit cohesion. Unit cohesion matters. It mattered in the, in the, the Trojan War, it matters today. In the end, men on the front lines fight for each other. And the Ukrainians know why they are fighting and have taken the NATO approach towards leadership that emphasizes taking care of one's men. The Russian system is based on the Dedovshchina, where the older soldiers terrorize and bully the younger one. Russian unit commanders rarely show an interest in their soldiers' warfare. Therefore, Ukrainian units fight as teams taking care of each other, Russian units mostly as individuals taking care of themselves. And the difference is obvious on the battlefield. And one other final thing, logistics matters. The saying is that amateurs talk tactics and experts talk logistics. Well, that should be amended to experts talk logistics and maintenance. Russia's failure to seize Kyiv and make major territorial gains at the beginning of the war 
was in a large part due to horrible logistics and poor maintenance of its vehicles and weapons. Uh, this trend continues still today. There are daily reports in Russian telegram channels and chats about equipment that does not work or units in the field lacking everything from food and ammunition to clean water and proper winter clothing. You know, Aaron, um, I can't recall a single war movie that's been made about logistics, but maybe one finally should be, because as in the case of the Russian army in this war, without a properly functioning logistics and maintenance system, um, the Russian army here in this war has been unable to advance further than 100 miles from its borders. So no, nothing has really surprised me. And I could make other points of, you know, about intelligence or sound military industrial base or about efficient medical evacuation and treatment. Uh, but I'll just leave it to some of the ones I've discussed. But what I have seen in the Russian-Ukrainian war is that the basic principles of military art and science since ancient times uh, remain the same. And that we see once again that countries, in this case, Russia, who violate these basic principles do so at their own risk. I think that 100 mile figure is uh, particularly interesting. I hadn't heard that before and I think really is good perspective here. So let's pivot towards the implication for Putin and Russia. I hope I'm safe saying that based on your characterization, you're not terribly optimistic for Russia's prospects in this war. So I guess we'll ask a very basic question here. Is Russia losing? And what follows a Russian defeat if that's the scenario you see? As far as winning or losing, um, I don't like to put it in those terms, those terms because we'll, you never really know until the very end when someone, one side is won and one side is lost. I believe what has happened in the past few days, or excuse me, the past few weeks, would be to quote what Winston Churchill said about the Battle of Alamein. And what he said is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning. And over the past three weeks, what we have seen is maybe the end of the beginning where the entire time the Russian army held the initiative, they are the ones who were on the offense. The Ukrainians were always on the defense. Now, with one small exception near the town of Bakhmut, where the Russians still continue some offensive operations, the initiative for the offense is in the hands of the Ukrainians. And that is what wins wars. So I think one of the key points of this past month has been the turning of the initiative from the Russians to the Ukrainians. How the Russians could get that initiative back, I quite frankly cannot see. I know that President Putin hopes by this mobilization, he may be able to get that initiative back. But with the other, all the things we've just mentioned during this podcast, uh, none of them will help him without, again, numbers will not be helpful without the officers to provide leadership, without the logistics, without the ammunition, uh, without the weapons and many other things uh, that are required uh, for victory in a war. So I guess a follow-up question there. Um, you mentioned the stories of these deployed draftees uh, trickling back into Russia. Is Putin in trouble here? Predicting Putin's demise has kind of been a, a cottage industry for years amongst Russia watchers. And uh, uh, so far it has not come, uh, uh, not come to be. However, I do believe that the effects on the battlefield are going to reverberate inside Russian society. And this, is, as this has precedence in Russian history several times 
uh, where failed wars led to revolution or at least to a, a change of the, of the leader. Um, I believe uh, that we are going to see uh, major internal unrest in Russia and possible attempts of some regions, especially those dominated by ethnic minorities, to attempt to break free again. As I said earlier, the mobilization has been a two-edged sword for Putin. And the sharp edge may be uh, what happens to these uh, mobilized men on the battlefield and their anger at being sent into war so unprepared. Be keen to hear, where do you think Russia is headed? What, what's the trajectory here? Well, when the war began, uh, the West, uh, the most liberal democratic uh, nations on, in the world, imposed um, very strict economic sanctions on Russia. And the thought behind this was that, you know, the international sanctions will cause the economy to collapse and that this economic hardship for both ordinary Russians and Russian elites will lead to protests and demand in the war. And then just to save its own economy, the Russians would eventually withdraw and end the war. This is good thinking, by the way, despite what some, uh, despite some outliers and, and some pessimists, um, the economic sanctions are having an effect and will have greater effect as they go on. And Russian protests based on economic um, deprivation are still possible and is likely to come. However, right now, the Russian economy is ailing, but it's not failing. And Russians do have a capacity for muddling through and making do with little. But in the shorter time, however, I believe the Russian army is probably closer to collapsing than the Russian economy. And defeat on the battlefield could bring Russian society and its elites together in demanding change in the Kremlin for its inept handling of the war and the humiliation to Russian pride because of a military defeat. To preempt revolution from below, Russian elites, especially the security services and the military, may decide to replace Putin in a palace coup in order to maintain their own status and hold on to power. In other words, for those who are students of Russian history, think not the revolutions of 1917, but the ousting of Khrushchev from power by a palace coup in 1964. At this point, the Siloviki, those who are part of the power structure there, have an incentive to do this to maintain their own power and status. So in the short run, if Putin was to be overthrown in, in a palace coup, this would mean Putinism continues, the basis of the, uh, of the uh, Russian regime, uh, but without Putin. So this would be leadership change and not regime change. Um, in the longer run, if we want to talk about, however, besides what may happen in the next year or so, if we want to talk about the next decade or two, I believe that how this war affects Russia will depend on the final disposition of Crimea. If Russia loses Crimea, this could be the shock to its political culture and its body politic that it needs to accept and conduct reforms necessary in the spheres of economics and domestic politics. Just as it took defeat and occupation of World War II for this to happen in Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, maybe defeat on the battlefield and the loss of Crimea and other minor appendages such as Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and Transnistria could provide the shock needed to turn Russia away from its nostalgia for imperialism and autocracy. If this does not happen, if, say, Putin does remain in power, or his, if his replacement manages to keep Crimea under Russian control, then, Aaron, I am much more pessimistic about how this war will affect Russia in the long run. Retaining Crimea 
may seem like a victory to Russia, but what it means is the continuation of economic sanctions ad infinitum with its continuing effects on the economy and economic growth over the decades. Coupled with this reality is the continuing reality of Russia's demographic decline and a loss of a large part of its most educated and technical savvy population to immigration. I mean, Russia can muddle through this and survive, but it will continue to fall back as a world power as the rest of the world moves forward into the 21st century in terms of both economic growth and technical innovation. Uh, If this happens, I foresee Russia falling back soon to a place uh, in the world very similar to its position in the early 17th century during its time of troubles. In a way, this has already started. And one effect of Russia's war in Ukraine is the acceleration of its loss of influence on its own periphery. Now, we've been talking a lot about the counterattacks this month by the Ukrainian army. However, in the long term, when we look back at these this past month, this month of September 2022, what may have been the most influential moment was when President Xi of China was in Kazakhstan meeting with the president, Tokayev, and he said that Russia will guarantee the territorial integrity of Kazakhstan. By doing so, Xi not only nullified Russian threats to Kazakhstan to seize its northern half, which they have been doing for years, but showed the world who is now the dominant hegemon in Central Asia, who is now the provider of security. Similarly, Azerbaijan, Azerbaijani military attacks this month against not Armenian positions in Nagorno-Karabakh, but Armenia proper, despite the presence of a Russian base, Russian fighter planes, and Russian troops in Armenia, showed that Azerbaijan's protector, Turkey, was replacing Russia as the major hegemon in the South Caucasus. So there is likely more to come if a defeat in this war leads to internal strife. And, um, but we are already seeing the effects, the loss of power along its periphery, and then we will see what happens internally in its core as this war continues. Thank you so much, Phil. That's all the time we have for this episode. So I appreciate your insights and the picture of where the conflict sits now and where it's going. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Aaron. It's been a pleasure.